Okay, so it's after 12. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Sofiane Mraubet, and I teach here in the Department of Anthropology. On behalf of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at UT, I would like to welcome you all uh, for this first installment of our new lecture series that is entitled The Social Sciences and the Middle East. Interdisciplinary in nature, the series brings together the scholarship of high-profile academics whose expertise runs the gamut of disciplines such as anthropology, sociology, political science, and social history. Putting together such a series, especially in times of budgetary cuts, would not have been possible without the help and support of individuals and academic units across this campus. First, let me thank the director and staff of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies for providing the necessary frame for the series. Moreover, I would like to extend my gratitude to the Department of Asian Studies, the Department of Religious Studies, as well as the Rappaport Center for Human Rights and Justice at the Law School for their invaluable support. We are extremely honored today to be able to start our series on the social sciences and the Middle East with such a distinguished guest. Brinkley Messick is professor of anthropology at Columbia University, where he has been teaching since 1997. He holds a PhD from Princeton University, and he is the recipient of numerous grants, fellowships, and awards, including the prestigious Albert Hurani Book Award from the Middle East Studies Association of North America and the Senior Scholar Award from the American Anthropological Association. Professor Messick's field research has led him over the past 40 years primarily to Morocco and Yemen. His research interests in law and political economy quickly developed into a passion for Sharia court records. This passion culminated in the masterly study of social history and textual ethnography published in 1993. The book, The Calligraphic State, Textual Domination and History in a Muslim Society, has become a work of reference for anybody concerned with the intersection of anthropology, Islamic studies, and the law. Professor Messick's current work is on the history of libraries and archives in Yemen, on Sharia litigation, as well as on Sharia property. His talk today, entitled Local Texts, Sharia in Mid-Century Yemen, examines the Islamic Sharia as it, has, as it was manifested in a system of local texts among Zaydis in Yemen. Although his research in Highland Yemen has spanned the last several decades, the readings Professor Messick discusses focus upon a slightly earlier point in time, the first half of the 20th century, he concentrates on his recent historical period, on this recent historical period, to study a formation of Sharia texts in the era of a classically styled Islamic polity. Please join me in welcoming Professor Brinkley Messick. Thank you, Sofian. It's a great pleasure to be here. And I must say, I'm still staggered by the luxury you live in here. Uh, Sofiane even took me to see the pool. Uh, it turns out that there were more than one, which I wasn't prepared for. We come from shabby circumstances in, in New York, and uh, 
such luxury is really quite beautiful. Um, the, the images I want to show you are a little bit stretched, and, uh, um, but I think uh, the first thing is to dispel the notion that Yemen is uh, a desert. Um, my interest, basically, and the thing I want to talk about, about today is concerns the, the Sharia as, uh, as it functioned, as it worked, as it was practiced in specific settings, how it was actualized in, in given societies. These are no longer merely questions for scholarship, as you know. In the aftermath of the attacks on September 11th, uh, perceptions grew in the West of the Sharia as backward, as arbitrary and cruel. Uh, Muslim philosopher Tariq Ramadan uh, has written that at the present, in Europe at least, quote, the idea of Sharia calls up all the darkest images of Islam. Closer to home, of course, we have the recent waves of anti-Sharia legislation in a number of American uh, states including nearby Oklahoma, although there are recent developments in the courts about that. Meanwhile, the Sharia itself, the Sharia is no longer really its historical self. In the modern era, colonial regimes and later nation-state reform decisively altered the political and epistemological landscape for the Sharia, removing criminal and commercial or contract law, for example, to new jurisdictions defined by modern legislation and effectively narrowing the scope of the Sharia to family law, marriage and divorce, child custody, and estates. What now remains, as Wael Halak puts it, is but a veneer of the historical Sharia. For their part, Western Orientalists, Western scholars, um, depicted the Sharia as a corpus of law frozen in place early in time, around 900 uh, CE, and is unable to adapt thereafter to changing circumstances, and is in any event largely ideal, and is only partially applicable. Thus we have been bequeathed a scholarly image of a body of law that was marred by an enduring problematic relation of doctrine to application. Pronouncements about this supposedly flawed relation between theory and practice in the Sharia were almost exclusively based on the study of doctrinal works. For over 200 years in Western scholarship, attention has been devoted to certain of the esteemed books of Islamic jurisprudence. In contrast, the court records, the decision records, and the routine documents of the, at the archival end of the spectrum only became widespread sources for research in recent decades with the rise of the new field of social history from about the 1960s on. Joseph Schock's authoritative introduction to Islamic law from 1964, for example, appeared just prior to the advent of this intensive archival research based on Sharia court records, and thus before many questions about the specifically textual aspects of practice could be properly posed. The project I want to speak to you about today adjoins both of these categories of texts, the doctrinal and the archival. It considers Sharia as a complex system of these texts. Anthropologists are relatively, relative newcomers to the study of the Sharia. Their entry has followed that of the social historians. But it could be said in, in quick summary that anthropology has made quite a significant impact in a field formerly dominated by historians and specialists in language. But anthropological inquiry entails a further scholarly problem, which relates to the study of written texts. 
Among anthropologists, there are, of course, important new interests in written texts in such things as colonial archives and in work on what Talal Assad has referred to as a discursive tradition. Despite a strong philological theme in research by the early generation of modern anthropology in the early 20th century, people like Franz Boas, there was a significant resistance to work with written sources. The philological theme in early anthropology were related to the study of oral texts, such as myths, not to written works. A recent re-advocacy of ethnographic inquiry has been framed in terms of an opposition to textualism, which is, this is the, the argument advanced by Hamoudi and Borneman in their new edited volume called Being There, Being There invoking a, a, a Geertzian phrase. Clifford Geertz being a leading anthropologist of the late 20th century. Recent historical anthropological work on archives advances apace, however. This includes, for example, Ilana Feldman's work on colonial Gazan bureaucracy, Penelope Papias on amateur Greek history writing, Anne Stoller on colonial letters, Annalise Riles on the modern document, Matt Hull on the modern Pakistani file, Charles Hershkin on Egyptian sermons, and Rochelle Davis on Palestinian village books, just to name a few. A specific feature of my project involves the analytic isolation of the textual dimension. I'll come back to this. But I should say, just uh, as a word of preface, as Sofiane mentioned, this is the first of a projected three volumes, probably crazily ambitious. The other two are concerned with Sharia processes, namely litigation, rules of evidence, procedure, and actual cases. And then uh, the final one on, on, on the domain of property, which is the basic substantive content of the Sharia. It's not a ritual law only. It's the, most of the, the works of, of doctrine are concerned with contracts and other such uh, property and commercial interest cases. Let me say a little bit about Yemen. I refer to a very specific corpus of written work that I've uh, collected and, and read uh, in a, by a particular community of Muslim jurists in, in highland Yemen, north Yemen. Um, and it's a mountainous, as you see, place, an agrarian place, and very beautiful. And I work in particular on a community called the Zaydis, a, a, a small, not too well-known group of jurists. There are various schools of jurisprudence, and I work on this, on this Zaydi group. Who have, who have been resident in these highlands for over a thousand years. Um, as Sophia mentions, I'm interested in a slightly earlier point in time, and that is before the 1962 revolution in North Yemen, which gave birth to the first nation state. I'm interested in a political entity uh, ruled by an imam, a, a traditional kind or a classical kind of Muslim leader and a classical kind of Muslim state. Um, uh, and this... This, this uh, remarkable and venerable uh, Islamic polity, this, this, kind of, this kind of imam rule is not brand new in Yemen in the 20th century. It has a thousand-year history there. But it, this is only one of three distinctive features that bear, uh, 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 that need to be mentioned in any kind of account that's going to focus, as I am, on the study of texts. These other features, beyond the state headed by an imam, who is a qualified Sharia interpreter, so that this is the figure who is the apical reader, the, the ultimate reader of, of Sharia texts in, in that state. Um, this is unlike the Ottoman Empire, for example, and unlike most is Muslim states, which were not headed by qualified interpreters of the law. 
The second main feature, and just mentioning them quick, quickly here, is that Yemen is a non-colonial setting in the modern era. Although there was an Ottoman, it was part of the Ottoman Empire for about 50 years around the turn of the 20th century. This meant there was no narrowing of jurisdictions, for example. There was no wave of legislation in the early periods up until the, the formation of the nation state. The third distinctive feature is the property regime. And this is extremely interesting in that the, the property regime imagined in the doctrinal works, which is basically a regime of private property based on a concept of, known as milk, uh, private individually owned land, is in Yemen similar to what actually exists on the ground. And so the, the property regime on the ground is similar to that in the law books, and it makes thinking about the, the, the textual um, materials at all levels especially instructive. This, again, is very much unlike the case in most of the Ottoman Empire, in Egypt, and other places as well, where other property regimes, which are not so much recognized by the law, existed. I worked in a little town called Ib. These are the kind of people I worked with uh, on an outing. They chew a plant called khat in Yemen, which is not a narcotic. It's a very beautiful stimulant, actually. It makes for a great intellectual acuity. It's a nice thing. Students study with it, use it to work. If you're going to spend an all-nighter as a student, you chew khat and the work goes well. It's great for ethnographic research. You sit in the afternoon and chew khat and people love to talk. This is the little town of Ib, a bit stretched here, but a town that's been around since at least the 12th century, where there were historians and scholars there that we know of. Uh, so it's quite old. It has a bit of a wall around it, you may see, and a couple of high minarets, but at least 60 small mosques in the town. That's another view from up on a hill. This is my house right here. Where is my house? Right here. A formerly Jewish neighborhood in the town, part of that, a mixed Jewish neighborhood. The Jews in, who lived there until the formation of the State of Israel mostly lived in that quarter of the town. So, um, and maybe another few just images to start off with. This is sort of the, the northern highlands, uh, uh, a village showing you a kind of fortified village and the kind of fallow terraces during the winter. Heavily agricultural country, though. This is the, the, the gate of Yemen, as it's called, in the capital city, Sana'a, in the old part of the city. The houses in that part of the country, which are earth and a baked brick as opposed to stone, as in Ib. This is a little further in the north. Interiors of the houses, the kind of tracery windows. And, uh, and then this is a, a doc kind of writing that this happens to be a letter, but uh, it's a kind of document that in the calligraphic state I referred to as a spiral text, because it begins over here comes down and turns the corner and goes upside down and spins around. How should we write restricted histories of the Sharia? Rather than a law reduced to its basic provisions and abstracted from societal contexts, and in contrast also to the necessary, necessarily general perspective of existing historical surveys, I delve into the complexity that obtained at the level of lived experience. Viewed in this manner, in terms of the engagements and the predicaments of an era and a place, the Sharia concerned not just the ideal, generic, or generalized Muslim, but the, uh, but the lives of particular people. These were the local individuals who taught, studied, wrote, copied, memorized, and interpreted various types of Sharia texts, as well as those who retained them in their homes and who, whose names figured in certain of them, 
as questioners and petitioners, litigants and witnesses, owners and agents, buyers and sellers, sharecroppers and tenants, heirs and beneficiaries, and husbands and wives. The general premise of my textual project is that a given Sharia tradition may be instructively approached through an analysis of its written acts, literary to documentary. That to inquire into what kind of writings these are is to ask what kind of law this was. In more specific terms, I suggest that a grasp of Sharia textual relations um, is a prerequisite for understanding its distinctive modes of dynamism, including both how it changed over time and how it operated in concrete situations. Genre in this kind of work refers not only to elements of form and types of texts, the familiar senses of the term, but also to institutions of human thought and action. To the extent that the Sharia may be conceived of as saying or doing things, it spoke and acted in specific genres. Texts of the various types provided the patterned vehicles for linking fact and rule, and they also helped define the several judicial roles. I attempt to isolate this textual dimension for separate study and to then sustain an analysis of what Haydn White referred to as the content of the form. <clears throat> this is to consider writing itself as a social fact with its own significance. It is also to treat written texts from the law book to the contract, not simply as the means for an inquiry, that is, as conventional sources, but also as ends. Reversing the normal order of the source, I address writings to learn about their own production and use. In the process, I distinguish between acts and artifacts, between the fleeting historical events of writing and their persisting material objects. I read the latter, the extant artifacts for traces of the former, the earlier acts of writing. In addition to what can be learned in this way about the overall shape and the detailed working of the sharia, I maintain that such an approach also should be a precondition for wider research, for, for assessing the import of these sorts of source materials, doctrinal passages, formal opinions, litigation narratives, contracts, wills, etc., for the writing of history. Focusing specifically on these issues of textuality, this inquiry, as I mentioned, is intended as a, a prolegomenon, a first step towards an extended anatomy of the period Sharia. The textual perspective is intended to be comprehensive in its own right, yet also partial. Think of the skeleton with respect to the body. If this is a study of Sharia form, the complementing studies fo will focus on Sharia process and on the principal content of the Sharia property. In terms of genres, the writings in question offer a representative inventory. They include works of literary jurisprudence, norm, notably doctrinal law books and related commentaries, plus some types of specialized treatises. Two varieties of freestanding formal opinions, one relatively well-known, the other not. Transcript and case judgment records issued by the Sharia courts of a particular town of Ib, and from the same local setting, the varieties of notarial documentation that embodied such ordinary acts as contracts and wills. In other words, four basic genres, books, opinions, freestanding opinions, judgments of the courts, and notarial documents. In both their genre range and their collective association with a defined place and time, the assembled writings provide an unprecedented set of objects for a situated study of the Sharia. 
I read these variegated Arabic texts as a historical anthropologist. In the remainder of this talk, I'm going to focus on two things. First, the systemic character of these Sharia texts, and two, some methods for reading them. So to begin to parse this written juridical tradition, I differentiate two, different, two general categories of texts, which I label library and archive. These are conceptual categories rather than libraries and archives. In the systematic thought found in the doctrinal treatises of the Sharia, if the systematic thought found in the doctrinal treatises of the Sharia may be considered one of the greatest intellectual achievements of Islamic civilization, the judgment records of, the, of Sharia courts and the related archives of legal documents represent the most important group of social, uh, sources for the last several centuries of its social history. Connections between accumulating doctrine and the ongoing tasks of judgment giving and notarial drafting between an academic tradition of the law and the rulings and other acts that pertain to concrete human endeavors are at the crux of any functioning legal system. Across this gulf between Sharia writings, from the lofty books of doctrine to the routine records of proceedings, the energy and ingenuity of the literary jurist is as striking as the tenacity and resourcefulness of the litigant in court. Although the Book of Flowers, the key Zaidi doctrinal work I study, dates from the late 14th century, this is Kitab al-Azhar, in the 20th century it remained a focus of instruction, reference, and interpretation. Since the Flowers also was the subject of a four-volume commentary work written and published in the 1930s and 40s, this corpus of doctrinal thought may be considered fully contemporary with the court cases and the notarial documents I also examine. These last, the records of lawsuits and the gamut of ordinary legal acts, represent the other end of the law. Put in writing by Yemeni jurists and practitioners of the mid-century era, some of them noted scholars for whom entries may be found in the biographical histories of the period, lawsuit and instrument documentation frequently report on the words and deeds of ordinary men and women, individuals who went unnoticed in the official historiography. Doctrinal works formal opinions, court judgments, and ordinary instruments were distinct genres of legal writing. Extending the floral metaphor, where authoritative doctrinal works such as the Book of Flowers represented the textual perennials of particular Sharia traditions, court judgments and notarial documents were their equally significant annuals. My terms library and archive refer to these major clusters of Sharia texts. The library was associated with the disciplines and activities of academic learning, including the madrasa as its formal site, while the mid-century archive had primary links to the mahkamah, the judge's court, and its surround, including the private notarial writer. While the writings of the library and the archive entailed separate discursive dynamics, they nevertheless had interrelated histories. Placing a, a period library and a local archive together at the center of the inquiry is integral to my examination of the Sharia as a written law. Extending this old notion beyond its normal referent of the law in the books, the legal literature or jurisprudence proper, here centered on a body of doctrine called the fiqh, I also take into account legal writing at the less exalted but hard-working levels of both court litigation records and ordinary instru instruments. This more holistic approach to what Raymond Williams turned the multiplicity of writing is designed to bring the complex interactions among doctrine, opinions, judgments, and instruments into view. 
Library and archive refer to contrasting discursive structures within an overarching juridical culture. Sharia traditions operated on the base, base of a textual divide between doctrinal genres that were relatively context-free, atemporal, and strictly technical, formal, in expression, versus a spectrum of richly circumstantial applied genres that were context-engaged, historically specific, and linguistically stratified. As opposed to the consistently general phrasing of doctrinal discourse, the practical acts of the courts and notarial writers were resolutely specific. A defining feature of library texts is their reference to legal actors and objects using the noun fulan and its variations and extensions, which are the standard so-and-so or John Doe and the such-and-such of formal Arabic. In such Sharia regimes, this generalizing library discourse of fulan is the discourse of theory and law. Archival texts, in contrast, equally characteristically named proper names. Where the doctrinal literature and related texts assumed a non-referential guise, consistently avoiding particular coordinates in time and space, court rulings and notarial instruments were carefully dated and located. Where doctrinal works engaged formal logical thinking, archival texts, while comprising some of the results of this thought, additionally embodied varieties of informal logic. And where literary jurists commonly distinguished between literary Arabic, the lugha, or language, and their own specialized linguistic usages, in court transcripts, for example, these two registers of tutored discourse were joined by expression, some of it colloquial, excerpted from primary texts, both oral and written, adopting all manner of regional and locale-specific vocabularies and terminologies Archival texts brimmed over, not only with the names of people, places, and things, but also with precise indications of amounts and quantities using named currencies and the variety of existing measures. In Sharia regimes, this particularizing archival discourse of the name is the discourse of practice and custom. Labeled genres and subgenres populated both the library and the archive. The higher level categories themselves, in contrast, were not labeled as such. These are my terms for the clusters of genres defined by the described overarching discursive differences. I maintain, however, that these rubrics give expression to an important but implicit set of opposed features, and as such, represent an integral part of what Schacht once referred to, mostly in passing, as the traditional order of Sharia texts. While they foreground, foreground issues of textuality, my library and archive constructs also help to rephrase the old questions of theory and practice in the Sharia. This permits me to reflect with, from a fresh standpoint on the issue that has long troubled Western understandings of Islamic law. If I speak of the library and the archive as involving a contrast between the book and the document, the textual differences may appear obvious. Matters were not, will not appear obvious, however, when I draw when I draw the boundary between the fatwa, the opinion of a mufti, and the court judgment. For discursive reasons, I group the fatwa with the library texts and the court judgment with those of the archive. A question posed to a mufti typically asked about a man or a woman, or it used stand-in generic names, i.e. versions of the fulan discourse, rather than referencing named individuals. And the mufti's response, the fatwa, was given as a general statement of legal principle that could be applicable to other situations, thus the association with the library. 
A case for it before a judge, by contrast, stressed the particulars of named litigants, and the judge's ruling was a specific application of the law that was not generalizable to other cases, thus the association with the archive. Library and archive writings of the period shared the media of paper and ink and the means of handwritten Arabic script, but otherwise their materialities diverged. A successful book or a significant opinion was apt to be reproduced and multiplied. It could be copied, taught, commented upon, and possibly memorized. An important archival writing, by contrast, remained a solitary original, with at most a single copy. A resultant feature of their respective materialities is that while library works were relatively few in number and highly restricted in terms of their social dispersion, as texts they were most likely to be preserved over time. While archival documents were very numerous and relatively widely disseminated in society, as texts they were vulnerable and perishable, likely to be lost or destroyed. Material artifacts that embodied the library discourse of Foulain frequently had an exchange value as commodities. Copyists labored for a wage, manuscripts book, manuscript books were bought and sold, and such works could even figure as the objects of endowments. At the same time, autographed books, I should note, prepared as, pious, as a pious activity or as the product of instruction, were not intended for circulation. Material artifacts employing, embodying the archival name normally were written by another type of paid writer, but the documents themselves did not circulate as commodities. Instead, they typically referred to commodities, notably those pertaining to the diverse landed property rights of this late agrarian age society. Aside from the standard role of residing in an archive and being brought forward in disputes or in subsequent transactions, and despite the many efforts to guard them, the different evidential value of ordinary documents made them susceptible to forms of aggression. In addition to the possibility of being lost or destroyed, documents were often intentionally forged, stolen, burned, and even in one case I know of, eaten. With technological modernity and the onset of mechanical reproduction, the writings of the library and the archive were differently impacted. In the first half of the last century, selected old book manuscripts were converted into print editions, and new authors began to write with print publication in mind. Archival documents, in contrast, remained exclusively manual products throughout the period. The first typewriters at court and the first printed contract forms did not appear until well after the 1962 revolution. My library and archive constructs should not be seen as a return to the great and little traditions, uh, uh, these are terms, a conceptual pair developed in the 1950s. In that era, anthropologists in prior decades exclusively concerned with even smaller scale and more remote tribal societies had just started to work in peasant villages where they began to encounter the written texts of literate societies. As opposed to this old reference to the high and the low, the literate versus the non-literate, versions of a civilizational tradition, library and archive refer, both refer to sophisticated clusters of written texts, each consisting of a distinct set of genres. Library and archive represent the different but complementary parts that together constituted the range of written expression in a given legal tradition. The period concepts of the great and little traditions imagined a division of Western scholarly labor between historians and students of literature on the one hand and fieldworking anthropologists on the other. The first type of scholar would handle the written text, 
while the second contributed information on the societal context. There was no notion at the time of an anthropologist as a reader of indigenous texts. Where this old opposition typically identified the high tradition with urban centers and the low with rural districts, a given library and a, and a period archive should be understood as co-present in and constitutive of particular locales. For issues of location in connection with particular uh, library and archive tandems, it's useful to turn to conceptualizations of the cosmopolitan, especially as this term might apply to pre-modern and non-Western instances. My colleague Sheldon Pollock describes a cosmopolitan text as one that, quote, thinks of itself as unbounded, unobstructed, unlocated, end quote. Library texts were in this sense cosmopolitan. Their characteristically non-contextually referential discourse enabled such texts to travel, to relocate. By means of their distinctive discursive horizons, such generalizing genres thought beyond the local. While in this sense not limited to particular settings, library texts nevertheless also pertained to specific locales. I, refer, I therefore address both the transportable nature of cosmopolitan library text together with this less apparent inverse problematic of their localization. In the lens of microhistory, the shared connection of a varied collection of texts to a given locality reveals, dis reveals distinctions. When the question of the local is posed in terms of a particular range of active writings, contrasts of chronology and spatiality become visible, where, as noted, library texts were phrased in the timeless and placeless language of theory, archival texts employed the grounded language of practice and exhibited defining attachments to a time and a place. Unlike archival texts, which were tied by locations, tied to locations by constraints of genre, library texts had to be made local. How were translocational library texts localized? How, by extension, were the related dimensions of local knowledge constituted and engaged? Responses to these questions entail both library-specific considerations and also issues concerning the interface of the given library with a specific archive. Cosmopolitan library works may be examined both in terms of their local incidents of their own bookish practices, as well as for a variety of possible intertextual relations with an indicated array of documentation. A study of a local re level reception and application thus involves a close look, on the one hand, at the activities of instruction, memorization, copy, commentary, copying, etc., and on the other, at possible structuring relations uh, between uh, with court judgments and notarial, notarial instruments. In Clifford Geertz's otherwise insightful comparative analysis of law as a form of local knowledge, his term, the Sharia in Morocco, one of his examples, is reduced to an essentially colloquial phenomenon. The important question of the constitution of local knowledge in relation to cosmopolitan forms of mus Muslim juridical thought went unexamined. As a further element of, the, of a broadened scope for the, this conception of the cosmopolitan, the mentioned new work also recommends considering the plural of the term. It additionally suggests that we focus on resultant, resultant affiliations, the textual communities indexed by the production and circulation of cosmopolitan texts. In their library thought, the, the library exponents of the Zaidi and the Shafi school, the second school in the Highlands, uh, of Sharia interpretation, 
uh, displayed a marked sharing, both in their substantive juris juristic provisions and in the authoritative works in their collateral literatures. But the two schools otherwise embodied contrasting com cosmopolitanisms. Zaidi and Shafi thought proceeded in, different, in separate channels and exhibited different degrees of historical extension in the wider Islamic ecumen. The Shafis were well known all across the Indian Ocean and parts of Egypt, whereas the Zaidi school was mostly constrained to Yemen. These differing histories as cosmopolitan discourses formed the part of the backdrop for contrast, contrasting localizations of these schools in upper and lower Yemen. Uh, the place I've been showing you pictures of is actually lower Yemen. A, a Sharia jurist resident in a place was thus what Eng Seng Ho terms a local cosmopolitan. Okay. Um, written archival texts in the town of Ib were drafted in relatively formal Arabic. Qualified literary jurists, who are library men essentially wearing archival hats, composed a subset of these documents. To the extent that the ordinary writings of the era engaged in applied versions of library conceptions, they were replete with cosmopolitan forms and terminologies. As a consequence, there are family resemblances between these local Sharia documents from highland Yemen and instruments found in many other uh, regions of, uh, of the Islamic world. At the same time, what I have spoken of is the characteristic archetypal discourse of the proper name, if not exactly colloquial, was certainly not cosmopolitan. Arabic naming conventions were relatively standard, but, but, but particular names pertained to local lives. As noted, the specific usage uh, to this, this usage specific to the archive extended beyond the ever-present proper names of individuals, including legal actors, witnesses, writers, etc., to those of diverse places and things. Notably also included, this it notably also included the distinctive local names given to some of the written instruments themselves. Their names for certain kinds of contracts and inheritance documents. Colloquial expression per se sometimes found its way into archival writings. Examples from Ib include a dialectical utterance quoted as such in a court record to further concretize its evidential significance, ad lib passages in a litigant's flowery rebuttal, or reference to a named customary institution in a land lease contract. Expression found in the archival genres may be thought of as dual, in that such documents blended elements of library discourse with that of the proper name. This defining combination of, uh, involves sourcing in both the mobile literary formulations of the doctrine and in the immobile fact terms of the local world. Like the Yemeni highland-specific nomenclature applied to some of the document types, the overall architecture of such documents was conventional. Technical features from key concepts to the more extended phrases or clauses appeared in accepted patterns of selection and deployment. It is possible in this sense to identify local genre constraints and the degrees of adherence to them, while also noting variation according to the skills or the intentions of the court or the notarial writers. For Sharia writings, the foil of the cosmopolitan thus was the contingent. This contingent quality of all archival writings hinged both on the textual routines of naming, dating, and placing, and also on, on the highlighting of stated specifics in court rulings, or the negotiated terms in notarial instruments. Let me pause now to show you some images. Do we want to have a, control the lights somehow? Does that make any difference? Not much. Okay. 
Uh, just to show you a few images of these texts. Uh, this is a, a, a law book written in verse, very short, suitable for memorization. This is the contract of sale up on top there. The whole contract of sale, which might be, uh, usually is the largest part of a law book, here is reduced to just a, a very short text there. Manuscript, of course. And this is the, the Book of Flowers commentary, the last of some 30 commentaries on the Book of Flowers, the uh, late 14th century work, which was also a memorizable text. This, this is uh, volume two of four, uh, uh, can be translated as the, the Gilded Crown from 1930s and 40s. And in it, the contract of sale uh, is given in, uh, in this, this print version. And then, if that's the first genre, the law book genre, the second genre is the, is the freestanding opinion, the main example being the fatwa, the opinion of the mufti again. Here's the mufti of Ib. This is a picture that actually appears in the calligraphic state. <laughs> and he's not actually writing a fatwa, although it looks just the same. He's actually writing a, an evaluation of the wound on the little girl's face. She had been involved in a street fight. Her parents brought her in for a wound evaluation, which is a whole separate genre. Uh, and this is actually a fatwa. The man who's sitting next to him there, appearing official, is, was actually the, call, the caller to prayer at the mosque next door who signed a question posed to the mufti here. His name is Hashesh, uh, but he's the uh, caller to prayer. Uh, and then the answer, which is the fatwa, is, starts in the middle up here. It says the answer. and It comes and swirls around upside down and, and ends up in the mufti's signature over there. Another kind of spiral text. But this is the second kind of, of, of genre, main genre that I talk about. Just a few more things about muftis. This is a mufti from 2008. I was back in Ibn. This is a man who'd been a judge, who'd been a functionary, who'd been a, a, a notary in the town. He was now uh, the town mufti. Very informal in some kinds of ways, although highly skilled in terms of his background, academic background. And he, sa he sat every day in front of his friend's shop in the marketplace and people came to him to pose questions, most of them in writing, as you see there. OK. And then this is, I mentioned that they're in, in, in the category <laughs> of opinion, freestanding opinion. The fatwa is, is one example, <laughs> which is well known in many uh, Muslim societies. <laughs> the, other <clears throat> the other I work on is called an ikhtiar, which is the choice by, um, literally means choice. It's a doctrinal position taken by the ruling imam to guide judges in their court decisions. And this is uh, Imam Ahmed, who reigned after 1948 to 1962. And this, as you see, this listed one, two, three, four, five, six. These are very short uh, positions that, that are, help judges decide in certain kinds of cases. And this, this is a little text of, the, of those kinds of opinions. So this is the second kind of opinion I work on, which uh, has interesting features of, about them that are not well known to the literature. Oops. Lost, lost our connection. There we go. Not that one. It has to go in this one right here. OK. Are we going to come back? Did our tech man come? There he goes. Okay, so, so that's two, the book and the freestanding opinion with two kinds of freestanding free opinion. 
And then, the, then we move to the archive. This is the court. This is the judge in court in the old-style court that I first worked in in, in the, the 70s, and uh, the, the judge being the man on the, on the left. This is the, the judge's retainer in court. These not very threatening men. You see there's a cork in the barrel of his gun there. They're sort of kindly old men who actually do go out and bring in uh, disputants, bring in litigants. They, they have that, that, that important duty, and they're me meant to maintain some kind of order in court, although they hardly ever move. This is a, a wakil, an agent, a person who they were not lawyers in the old system prior to the nation state, but they were people who were conversant and skilled in speaking and skilled in writing. And this guy was a, was a, a tremendous, uh, I, I received documents from him in some very interestingly argued cases that he, this is a, was a very shrewd litigator um, in, the, in the late imamic period in the beginning of the nation state. And this is back to the judge again uh, that I showed you before. But this is in the more characteristic pose, which is in front of his house. In the afternoon, still in that period, uh, judges, and this is a man who had been a mufti in, a, in, the, in the earlier period and now is a Republican-era judge. But he still would receive people in front of his house, in, in the, the hall, little courtyard in front of his house, which is the more classical form that uh, in Yemen it doesn't rain any, it's, the weather's perfect every day in the morning for 365 days and court was often held in the morning in front of judges' houses before the courts were built. This is another judge sitting in front of his house. And this is the kind of record that were produced in litigation. This is a court uh, decision uh, very much unlike those produced in the, in the Ottoman Empire which were often quick summaries that you get three or four cases to a page. This is an extremely long record. Some of them would be 10, 15 feet long with detailed uh, testimony, quotation, lots of uh, argumentation, very interesting things. And they're vertical roles, as you see. And this is the, uh, the judge's uh, secretary in the afternoon sitting room. You see he's preparing documents of that type. And then, in addition to the original documents, they, the uh, copies of, of such documents were, were kept in the court registers. And this is an example of that. So this is the, now the, the first uh, in, in, the, in the archival section. In, this, in, in concern with, uh, the, with the, the preparation of, of court documents, there were also rules issued by the imam. This is something that is a very distinct sort of impact of the Ottoman Empire. This is where the, the, uh, the imam sets rules for how the judges are meant to behave, what kinds of records are going to be kept. Uh, and these have their an, uh, an ancestor in the late 19th century Ottoman Empire. And here is a, also another thing that came from the Ottoman Empire in the courts area is, is the institution of appeal. This is an appeal to a case actually about a marriage. Uh, and you see the seal of the imam put on the document, uh, on the same document on the back we'd have the appeal put on with the appeal ruling and the judgment there. Uh, just an acceptance of it by the imam, who was the final voice. And as opposed to other kinds of kings and sultans who had no say in terms of the, they, made, they, they were the, the umbrella for the state, but they weren't uh, qualified uh, interpreters who could, who could say this is the correct decision, which an imam could do. This is the head of the old Supreme Court in, in, uh, in uh, the Republican era, but a man who I interviewed for his work in the diwan, in the circle of, of, of writers around the old imam. And this is a modern judge from the 1990s who you see has in a chair and a desk with a phone. And he was the man I first, first brought a briefcase to court. I've never seen a Sharia court judge bring a briefcase. 
and now they have a modern court with an appeal court with a bench and, and, and podiums for, for, the, for the prosecutors, which is another new institution. And this is the kind of new judgments that are written on, on forms, separating out all the names and et cetera, and, 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 and the, the, the Ministry of Justice is identified and the, the balances of the scales, et cetera. So this is a more modern kind of judgment from 1996. And then finally, the fourth of these kind of documents is the, the private instrument, the, the notarial document, the contract, the will, the lease. This is a very rich man who uh, literally his, the documents are coming from his loins here. Uh, and when I took this document of his picture in the 70s, he was, he, he was embarrassed by it and, and he thought it was very immodest, etc. And when I went back in the 90s, he had it blown up on his wall. He'd overcome his, his, uh, his embarrassment at it. But this is to show you the kind of documents, they're, they're small fold and rolled documents for all the terraces on, on the mountainsides. This is a sale contract. And I, I will talk a bit, say something about the, the, uh, the little extra notes added to them and the seals, et cetera. Again, in a kind of spiral format. And this is a, 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 another kind of library work. I would call it library work, but it pertains to the archive. This is a, a text that is for, the, for giving you models for how to write certain documents. So this is the, the fourth chapter of, of this little document on sales. And it tells you how to, if, if a, person, a, a person buys a, a, a house or a piece of land, the notary should write that Fulan bin Fulan, the Fulan son of Fulan should, in other words, it makes a model in library discourse. And, but this, this is a library discourse designed for the writing of these archival texts. And this is a, another kind of very important uh, in, in sharecropping relations and in leases. This is a lease of, this is a landlord's register showing the, his leases uh, of a building and a piece of land. And this is a will from early in the 20th century, uh, very beautifully written uh, and very rich in terms of a man thought he was going to die. There's plague in the town, thought he was going to die. And, uh, and so he settled all his affairs, he dealt with his former wife he felt bad about, and many other things, his minor children, and very interesting text. This is a, one of the notaries from the old days there at his home on the, on the left. And, and this is uh, what happened also in my work, is that local people got interested in the archive, in their own archives themselves. So this is a man reading a document collection that had been left by one of his ancestors. And this is the work that, uh, that I got involved in. And, and again, some people got excited about it also. Okay, let me just finish up here with um, a little bit on, on methods of reading. Um, research in the contemporary field of Islamic legal studies, am I, am I have time, Sofiane? Has tended to focus either on the library or the archive. I emphasize their coexistence. To read for system without presupposing it is to read relationally. Although it is possible to proceed either top down or bottom up, that is, to start either with the library or the archive. The key is to be attentive to, attentive to the dialogics of genre. Before reading across genres, however, one must read within them. My first effort, therefore, is to establish the historical features and the variations of that form. The four main types that I spoke of are, without ex with the exception of that one kind of opinion, well known to Islamic history. My second effort, however, is to trace crossing connections between genres. I read in general for relations of composition, material and conceptual, in one strategy, I adapt and extend the approach of Wild Halak to what he terms textual stripping. Halak hypothesizes editing techniques that permitted important changes of genre, resulting in movements between certain types of Sharia texts. 
The most significant and least understood of these enabled the editing of fact configurations recorded at the more ephemeral level of the archive for the purpose of subsequent inclusion in the more enduring formats of the library genres. To follow such fact configurations through different textual forms is also to track local patterns of rule creation and application. There are many examples of how that work works. Maybe I'll just continue on. In another strategy, I utilize Bakhtin's work on reported texts, in which he refers to intertextual relations based on quotation and citation. I examine genre-specific composition techniques that establish physical connections between texts, including those of the same or different or of different genres. Among the library genres, for example, the relation of a standard type of commentary work to the commented upon law book was one of global quotation. This relation between library texts had implications for the nature of doctrinal argument. Among the archival genres, the often lengthy Sharia court judgment of the era was a different type of what Bakhtin called an incorporating text, one constructed out of quoted passages from transcribed oral testimonies and various genres of written instruments. This textual relation among archival writings established the evidential basis for judicial decision-making. In my cross-genre readings, I also take cues from the text and writing conceptions of the Zaydi jurists themselves. This is to be attentive to meta-texts, to texts about texts. At the highest level, I'm interested in their views as to how the textual universe behind the Interpretive Act was configured and about how knowledge was organized in texts. In at least one important respect, however, the approach of these Muslim jurists is like mine in this inquiry. For the purposes of certain of their own analyses, they too separated form, that is, writing itself, from any particular content. A specific thread of their thought was motivated by the dilemmas posed for them by ordinary Sharia writings such as contracts and wills. Routine documentation of these types was assumed to be an indispensable buttress for legal economic life, but these same texts were also known to be potentially dangerous. The perceived threats range from ignorance on the part of the notarial writer to licit stratagems, and from mild deceptions to outright forgery. Concerns surrounding the evidence value of, these, of such writings generated a lengthy historical strand of scenario-based argumentation and related rule-proposing that I follow down into the 20th century, both in law books and in individual opinions. I understand such thinking as library-level reflection on the status of archival writings. Among the solutions advanced, one paired writing with the authority of memory. Another required the conversion of written evidence into spoken testimony. And still another relied on connecting a given script to a writer of sound repute. But as generations of Highland theorists staked out their positions on this conundrum, local notarial writers continued to go about the everyday business of drafting documents for their clients. A different response by the literary jurist to the exigencies of these routine writings led to the creation of model documents. I showed you a picture of that, that literature. A specialized subliterature on the writing of correct archival texts emerged. I read this local example of, of this minor library genre as a further context-specific expression of the jurist's analytic thought about writing and textuality. I compare the texts of selected model documents with those of actual documents written in the same historical period. And I compare both of these types of texts to the relevant chapters in the law books of the period. Modeling relations such as these between specific genres of library and archive texts 
pertain not only to how theory entered into practice, but also to how practice entered into theory. Both of these reciprocal movements are vitally important to any living legal system, but neither has been properly understood with reference to a functioning instance of the Sharia. I thus endeavor to bring the humble documents of the archive into conversation with the prestige texts of the library. This is to treat routine documents as integral to what Talal Assad was referred to as a discursive tradition. An analysis of such ordinary writings is obviously indispensable to, understanding, uh, to an understanding of Sharia practice. And I argue that the implications for the nature of its theory are as important. Within this, the larger system of Sharia texts, I thus underscore the much less understood agency of the archive. In, and I also want to just mention briefly in, in conclusion about the ethnographic research I conducted because the ethnographic research I conducted in post-revolutionary Yemen is foundational to this historical inquiry about the pre-revolutionary period. It was in readings with local men in Ib that I began to learn what to read for and how to do things with writings. My fellow readers assisted me by explicating usages and identifying genre constraints. And they also exposed me to techniques of textual interpretation and implementation. These included how a compound undertaking or a complex dispute could be broken down into a series of written acts, or how a single text could be dismantled into its component clauses. Closely related to these ethnographic readings was my research on local scenes of writing. I thus worked on dispute settlements that took place within the larger surround of the Republican period, Sharia court. I showed you some images. I focused on transitions from spoken words and quotidian realities to written documents and Sharia expression. These descriptions also prompt insights about the in situ status of written documents and about archives at their points of creation. I use these ethnographic experiences in participatory reading and in the observation of writing for purposes of, re of historical reconstruction. Finally, my efforts to read and think about Sharia writings raised issues specific to anthropology. This type of inquiry, is, as I've said, is, is not only relatively new to the field, but it also had to overcome considerable resistance. This despite a covert form of philology that I mentioned that runs through the early modern history of the field. How can method and theory geared to observation and oral materials be adapted to work on reading and written texts? Following the discipline's historical turn of the last decades, archival research has become the new normal of anthropological inquiry. But I suggest that many issues related to this important shift remain unaddressed. The lingering conceptual impasse in the discipline is illustrated by the characteristically limited utilizations of Bakhtin, whose principal critical work, we should recall, was on the novel. As opposed to applications confined to the study of oral texts, the wider application, appropriation and application I've sought to, um, I've sought to implement seeks an integrated approach to spoken and written text formations. What are the special features and the particular possibilities of anthropological readings? Minimally stated, such readings will comprise an analytic humanism informed by an ethnographic sensibility. But are there differences between reading cosmopolitan library texts as opposed to contingent archival writings? For a discipline marked by long-standing commitments to the local, attention to the latter, the grounded writings of the archive, represents an initial step towards an analysis of a discursive tradition. For a discipline with translocal ambitions, however, attention to the former, the ungrounded works of the library, represents the more complicated but equally necessary second. Thank you.